And hello to all. I am Eugenio Colani, and I'm here with Troy Howarth. Hello, Troy. Well, hello. Always nice to be here talking about uh, one of my all-time favorite topics, of course. Uh, not so much Francis Matthews, although I do like Francis Matthews. But one of my favorite topics is the Jallo, as I know you share similar enthusiasms with myself. I do. I do. And we're here to talk about a film that we can define as obscure uh, in many respects, uh, although most of the people that participated in the film, starting with writer Gianfranco Clerici, director Stelby Massi, and most of the cast, uh, can hardly be defined as such. Uh, in fact, it's a film that is packed with uh, recognizable names um, yes. behind and in front of the camera, but the film, as most people know, uh, was quite unfortunate. Um, it was, we were commenting just before this audio commentary began, we were commenting it made very little money in Italy when it was released in 1974. Uh, it didn't do much as far as revenues are concerned. Um, but, you know, I feel there are reasons for that. Uh, and which, you know, this might also explain uh, why the film was so poorly distributed abroad. Yeah, yeah, and one of the things we can comment on right off the top is how many Jally and uh, sort of European films of the period open with scenes on planes, uh, planes arriving and departing and so forth, which is a south growth of this notion of international travel, which was terribly sophisticated and terribly exciting at the time. Nobody really bats an eye about it nowadays, but after kind of lean economic years and, and periods of great austerity, the idea of all the sort of boundaries of the world flinging open and people being able to just jet off and go wherever they pleased on a relatively reasonable budget uh, ensured that, you know, a lot of people, uh, whether they were in the Midwest of the U.S. or from London or wherever, were just able to sort of take off and go wherever they, their little hearts desired. So a lot of these films kick off that way. The very first real cinematic giallo, uh, Mario Bava's The Girl Knew Too Much, opens similarly um, with a... Uh, a scene on a plane, although it plays out differently in the American version versus the Italian version, of course. And here we're being introduced to our protagonist, Francis Matthews, uh, playing Giorgio, um, looking very every inch a Giorgio. Uh, he's uh, he's odd casting. Um, we will talk more about him as we go along. We're going to have ample opportunity to talk about him. I wonder if he was the first choice for this film. He seems a very strange choice from my point of view, not least due to the fact that this really is kind of a unique Italian credit for him and his career. He's not one of those actors who had a kind of side hustle in Italy during this time, going back and forth and doing a lot of European films. Um, he was primarily in the uh, British film and television industries, really. So, um, yeah, he's an unusual choice for this film. He's not bad in it. It's just, you know, a little jarring if you're used to seeing him in other films in a, in a sleazier context such as this. Yes, well, unfortunately, it's impossible to know exactly who chose him and if there were previous candidates. But what we do know is that most of the cast, and definitely the uh, leads were given, were handed to Stelvio Massi uh, right at the beginning. Uh, Massi had very, very little to do with the casting of the film. Uh, as also confirmed by his son and closest collaborator Danilo, uh, who I interviewed for this Vinegar Syndrome release. Um, Stelvio Massi 
was contacted by Carlo Maglietto. Now, before getting into uh, the career and this specific moment in time for Massi, and we have a lot to say there, uh, it's worth spending a couple of words on uh, Carlo Maglietto. Maglietto is one of those very strange, uh, typically uh, Italian and, and specifically typically 70s producers. He was sort of, he, on the one side he was a producer, but he was also somewhat a, of a um, manager. Uh, he kind of uh, dealt with, um, uh, as, as an agent at times, definitely for his uh, partner. At the time when this was released in Italy in 74, they had just broken up, I think, a year previous, but he had been the partner of actress Edna Schurer. Emma Costantino, uh, who, and he was in fact pivotal in launching her as an actress in the late 60s. Uh, but Maieto kind of uh, worked as a, an occult uh, financier, sponsor for certain films. Uh, he had a hand at one point in distribution. I mean, he's, he is one of those uh, strange uh, kind of middlemen uh, producers um, that also seem to uh, uh, be involved often with the very uh, popular, beautiful blonde actresses. In fact, he uh, more recently uh, became the um, in the eighties the partner of Janet Agron, and they both moved uh, uh, together in Miami. Now he's back. He's back in Italy. Has been for some time, and apparently is very busy. Um, handing, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, denouncing people that just simply mention him in an article. Uh, he's very quick to call his uh, his lawyer. And uh, I mean, I, I could I could can say that uh, I I was contacted by Mayito's lawyer for an interview I did with Giulio Berruti, who uh, edited a few of Mayito's films, simply because Berruti during the interview Although speaking very highly about Mayeto, mentioned that he'd sometimes be very slow in with payments, and uh, or in fact sometimes kind of uh, skimmed a bit of money here and there, and uh, a, f a few months later I was handed papers. Uh, of course, nothing happened of it. it; it just you know blew over. But yes, Mayeto is a very a very peculiar, typically 1970s kind of um, producer, and. Um, here we go. This is uh, this is uh, one of his films, and uh, an interesting thing is Marcello Vallone, who had worked with Maglietto uh, previously, was offered this film before Massi came on board, um, at least according to Avallone's recollection. So uh, Massi was definitely not a first choice here. Yeah, well, as we'll talk about, this really isn't a genre for which he's known, and it's not really a genre for which he had particular affinity. Uh, for various different reasons, but um, I wanted to comment too the the staging, the camera work, and so forth that we're seeing in this sequence. Some very nice elliptical editing techniques. Um, you can tell Massey is if he's not entirely comfortable in this milieu, he's still trying to make it more dynamic. Uh, there's a lot of handheld camera work, a lot of uh, roving, traveling camera work. Um, you know, the whole sequence of Francis Matthews going and finding his wife has died in childbirth, albeit not for the reasons that he thinks, and we'll find out about that at the end. Um, 
the uh, the birth of his his child, which at this point he doesn't believe it could possibly be his because he's under the impression that he is uh, that he is uh, sterile. In fact, uh, again, all these things get paid off at the end. There's a twist, as there tend to be in these films. But there's a lot of dynamic camera work that's going on. Uh, interesting coverage. Very economical too. You know, really cutting it from the uh, the death of the wife to the funeral, the burial. All that sort of thing. The nice little sort of side color with the elderly ladies uh, being very judgmental over the fact that he's not wearing a black suit uh, to a funeral. Don't don't men believe in wearing black anymore? One of the women says. Uh, so sort of you know little caustic commentary on old-fashioned mores and the uh, the kind of. Uh, at times hypocritical attitude of righteous religious people you know who are only too quick to judge um very interesting actor here of course uh, as you know only too well giorgio abatazzi as professor betty who um not terribly well known in the u.s but had a really interesting career uh which we can talk about in more detail of course he's best known for playing the lead in last year at marion bad uh, opposite uh, delphine sarig um but also was a renowned stage actor um you know ex extraordinarily well regarded as a classical theater performer it had done a very well regarded version of hamlet that caught the attention of Laurence olivier uh who actually brought him over to the old vic uh during the year of uh, shakespeare's uh, 400th anniversary to perform an italian version directed by franco zeparelli at the old vic uh, a very very rare feat uh for a uh, Italian version of Hamlet to be performed at the Old Vic, uh, certainly with Laurence Olivier's, uh, you know, involvement and uh, his uh, his uh, kind of instigation of it happening. Uh, so it really speaks volumes about him as an actor. He was also known, obviously, for being extraordinarily handsome, very charismatic guy. And the uh, story goes that uh, Lucino Visconti directed him on stage at one point and tried unsuccessfully um, to make him one of his paramours. So there you go. He's uh, certainly an actor of, uh, of distinction. Should note, too, he actually directed, um, co-wrote, and starred in a television version for Italian TV of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, which was photographed by Stovio Massi. Yes, uh, Giorgio Bertazzi uh, doesn't have a particularly prolific uh, film career um, because unlike other stage actors working uh, during this period he wasn't interested in pursuing that line of work he, uh, he was very much a purist and had a i would uh, define as a cynical attitude towards uh, towards films um he um he did however participate as you mentioned in a handful of films but uh, definitely nowhere close to having the uh, film careers, uh, film career of such people as Enrico Maria Salerno, or Gabriele Fersetti, or Luigi Pistilli, um, or Carlo Alighiero, all actors that, uh, you know, never abandoned the stage, um, and in fact felt <clears throat> very close to, uh, to the theatre right up till their, um, till, till their death, and uh, Luigi Pistilli when he committed suicide, in fact, he he was um, he had just begun starring and directing uh, a theatre um, a theatre place. So, uh, but they all had very uh, prolific and distinctive careers in film. Albertazzi, not so much, but that was definitely a choice 
um, because he he had plenty of opportunities uh, to um, you know, to act in films. Uh, one of his last appearances is and. It's quite worrying that we happen to, we, uh, Troy, we, we mentioned this film way too much, but he did appear also in, in Fatal Frames, Fotogrammi Mortali by Al Festa, uh, where he has a very small role. I believe he appears in the one of the first scenes, if not the very first scene of the film, and kind of disappears uh, soon after. But yes, he was very much on the poster, uh, visible on the poster for that film, because Albertazzi has uh, kind of... Um, entered the collective imagery in Italy. I mean, he's become nearly an adjective. When, when you want to indicate a certain kind of classically tra uh, trained uh, stage actor, uh, maybe slightly pompous, uh, you would say, you know, Albertazzi. You would use you would use his surname. You know, who do you think you are, Albertazzi, or uh, you know, somebody who's kind of putting on a voice or a certain kind of pompous attitude? You would say. Uh, oh, Albertazzi just walked in. So that's um, so he's he's extremely extremely popular to this day uh, in in Italy. Um, but um, regarding Jekyll, uh, Jekyll, uh, which is the um, TV uh, TV movie you uh, you mentioned, which uh, at the time in the sixties and seventies we called. We called Sceneggiati, that was the word for this specific kind of miniseries that was very popular in Italy. Um, and a lot of actors and directors were born uh, within within uh, the, uh, the the world of Sceneggiati. Um, Stelvio Massi uh, stated once in an interview in the mid-90s that he considered some of his finer camera work um, was done for that film, for that TV movie, for Jekyll, directed by Giorgio Albertazzi. And Albertazzi, in another interview, states that he let, gave very much free hand to Massi uh, to kind of invent and, uh, and find ways of making the scene more dynamic, and which is something he is fam famously does in most of his films. He is, uh, to this day, mentioned as one of the greatest, together with Ariste Massachusetti, Gio D'Amato, but he comes definitely first in this respect, one of the greatest uh, handheld camera operators of that time. Uh, you know, very firm hand. Yeah, yeah, you, you could add Delamano into that as well. Certainly, Delamano was extremely well known for his uh, dynamic handheld camera work, sometimes approaching. Uh, a steady cam level of elegance. Um, people commented on his ability somehow <laughs> to do this, uh, which was was very inspiring. Uh, Massey obviously does extraordinary work in that capacity as well, and, and Massachesi, you quite rightly point out too as well. Um, obviously, Avatazzi and, and Massey must have gotten along. If, if Massey didn't bring him onto this film, then it was a happy accident that he was involved. Uh, he did come back to do another film for Massey later on, a, a much more typical Massey film. He's in Mark the Cop or, or Mark the Narc, depending on what you want to call it. Uh, I think it's also called Blood, Sweat, and something or other. <laughs> it's one of the many alternate titles. Um, so, yeah, there, there, was, there was obviously a certain level of uh, mutual respect that must have taken place there. Um, and he, you know, he also worked with Joseph Losey. He's in Eve uh, with Stanley Baker and the assassination of Trotsky with Richard Burton. So, did a few films, but as you say, by choice, not really somebody who focused on film work. Um, given his really distinguished background 
as an actor, as a very serious actor, it's uh, kind of surprising to see him in a film such as this. I mean, it would be kind of equivalent to seeing uh, an Alec Guinness or Ralph Richardson doing a really sleazy thriller, um, where not just playing in a sleazy thriller, but also playing a sleazy character in a sleazy thriller. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting that he elected to take on this particular role. But there you go. I think he does a good job with it. As I mentioned before, Francis Matthews is our star. Um, you know, again, sort of an atypical leading man for a giallo, but um, an interesting choice. I mean, you would get occasionally English actors who you wouldn't necessarily expect to star in films like this. I mean, uh, one of the other great examples I can think of, and it's a film that has a certain degree of DNA in common with this one, actually, is New York Ripper, where you have Jack Headley, who was very well known for having done uh, cold hits and things like that on British TV and various different British films. He worked for Hammer. He worked, uh, he's in one of the James Bond films. As a matter of fact, right before he does New York Ripper, he's in For Your Eyes Only in a small part. So uh, he's not somebody that you would necessarily expect to see in films such as this. Unfortunately, a lot of these actors, nobody ever really bothered to ask them about their forays into Italian films because I suspect that in the certainly the pre-internet era, a lot of people weren't really aware of these films. So I think... In the case of something like this, Francis Matthews probably really wasn't in a big rush to let people know I did a really sleazy thriller in Italy, so he didn't really talk about it much. Um, a lot of people probably weren't aware of it, and so it was never really asked of him, what did you think of it? Um, same thing with Jack Headley. I don't think anybody ever asked him, what did you think of the New York Ripper? I mean, you can almost guess what they'd say, but <laughs> you never know. I mean, maybe they would have said, oh, I loved it. I had a great time doing it. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, uh, these actors are now gone, and uh, those opportunities are no longer available. Um, a little bit of a tricky camera work here, obviously shooting through the glass, and we're going to get some J&B placement as well. Typical in Italian films of the period, lots of J&B. And we'll see as a couple different points, even when there's no J&B bottles, there are J&B ashtrays on uh, display as well. So they were definitely getting their, their name in a lot in movies during this time. Yes, well, speaking of product placement, um, Massey was not the most subtle of directors you know when whereas some uh, some colleagues of his were definitely a little bit more sophisticated when it came to filming um maybe you know aqua payo water aqua payo or jambies or uh, or sometimes even um shops um you know they would uh, for example in his subsequent film which is definitely the film uh, that kind of jump-started his career as a director, which is Emergency Squad, Squadra Volante, which has a, quite a quite a, an amazing cast. I mean, Thomas Millian, Gastone Moschin, Stefania Casini, uh, and so on, Ilaria Guerdini. Well, um, in that film, there's a lot of very, very heavy-handed uh, product placement. And at one point, uh, uh, Massi just places his camera in front of a... Um, a shop selling uh, fur coats, which uh, is actually the yeah. the shop that um, you know gave um, helped out with the in the costume department, and so a little publicity for them there. So he was definitely not subtle when it came to that sort of that sort of stuff. He was very matter matter of fact. Uh, speaking of cast here, and speaking of sleaziness, here we get. Uh, well, actually, uh, a pop culture icon in Italy, we've got Ilona Staller, uh, Cicciolina, better known as Cicciolina, that's her uh, stage name, uh, her alias. Uh, Ilona Staller uh, is 
hands down uh, one of the, if not the most famous uh, uh, pornographic actress uh, associated to Italy. I mean, she became immensely popular after appearing in a number of um, mainstream films, albeit often uh, kind of rough around the edges and and fairly sleazy. And uh, you know, she would often, uh, you know, appear nude in these films. But you know, mainstream and non-pornographic, nonetheless. She starts her porn career in the early 80s. Uh, she actually is also the star of um, an erotic film previous to her uh, entrance in, in porn, uh, directed, co-directed by Bruno Mattei and Amasi Damiani, called Cicciolina More Mio. Very strange, very strange film that kind of, you know, uh, was feeling the... Um, legalization of pornography in Italy, uh, which occurred in 1979. Um, Ilona Staller, Cicciolina, then later on uh, became an extremely prolific porn actress. She even starred in a film with John Holmes. This is the, the phase in which Holmes was, you know, very much sick. He had, uh, uh, he, he had um, encountered the HIV virus. Um, and died soon later. He had come to Italy, actually, uh, fully aware he had been infected, but said nothing and continued working both in Italy and in the U.S. without ever informing the, uh, his fellow performers. Uh, she luckily did not uh, contage the HIV virus. Um, she survived that, uh, you know, despite having had a, a sex scene with, with John Holmes. Uh, she later in the 90s um, also um, associated with the so-called radical party, Partito Radicale, headed by uh, Marco Pannella. She actually managed to get into parliament with her um, uh, party, uh, Il Partito dell'Amore, the Party of Love. Uh, it, it was a more of a novelty, obviously, uh, but you know that really sedimented her. Uh, importance in um, contemporary Italian pop culture, and to this day, she she's kind of you know in a Tracy Lords kind of way. She she is a mainstream figure now, and has been for you know since the 90s. She appears, she I believe she appeared in a, a Celebrity Big Brother uh, here in Italy. Uh, will appear as a, uh, you know in talk shows. She's a mainstream figure. Her role here is very small. In fact, she has already left us and has for a few minutes now and will not reappear. But um, this is one of her very first films, definitely the film in which she is um, uh, very recognizable. Well, and you know, right from the get-go, she's being asked to strip completely nude. Um, one wonders if Francis Matthews is aware that he shared sexy time with a future porn star in later on in life, if that even occurred to him or not, who knows. Um, you know, uh, with her going into politics, it makes me wonder if there's a possibility of, of Belladonna getting into uh, Congress over here in the United States. It would be a lovely thing to get something like that going. Um, there is, uh, I mentioned before, we, we've already seen him. We're going to be seeing more of him, of course. Uh, Renato Rossini, Howard Ross, Red Ross, whatever you want to call him, uh, playing the police inspector here. He's one of the kind of strands of DNA that connects this movie with the New York Ripper. 
Um, but there's also that heavy element of sexualized violence with the uh, literally the slitting of the victims from, from vagina to sternum, as they say in the dialogue. Um, there's even a scene or two in the film that uses the old uh, pulsing colored like, light effect, um, which is also used in New York Ripper very memorably uh, in a sequence uh, where somebody meets a really horrible death with a uh, uh, broken bottle. Um, you know, which everybody will know the scene I'm talking about if you've seen the film. It's a, it's an old stylistic thing. I mean, you can even point it back to something like Touch of Evil by Orson Welles, for example. Of course, Mario Bava used it very effectively in Black Sabbath and Blood and Black Lace and so forth. But, you know, there's there's this film is kind of part of a trend of Gialli that tackled the concept of children in danger, either in terms of being killed by the usual black-gloved assassin, or a killer sometimes uh, somehow traumatized either by infertility or forced abortion. Uh, so we can point to films like Don't Torture a Duckling, Who Saw Her Die, and What Have You Done to Solange, all of which uh, came out in 1972. Again, one of the probably the peak year of Giallo films. And interestingly enough, of course, this film is co-written by two of the people who co-wrote Don't Torture a Duckling, uh, Clarici and uh, Roberto Gianviti. Uh, both involved in the writing of this film as well. Uh, and so, yeah, there's there's definitely connections there, and Clarici and Gianviti would later work uh, with the co-writer on this film, Vincenzo Menino, on the script for The New York Ripper, uh, you know, before it was overhauled by Lucio Fulci and Dardano Sacchetti. So, you know, the film ended up being quite different from what it was originally intended to be back when Ruggiero Deodato was intended to direct it. So lots of crossovers here in terms of these uh, films. And, of course, this distinguished mustachioed actor here, we have to point out very fast, is Tom Fleggi, um, a uh, Hungarian actor who made his name in Italian films. Um, He's not listed as having passed away, but I'm quite sure he must have done. He hasn't done a film since Voices from Beyond, which was one of Lucio Fulci's last films in the early 90s. Um, if he is indeed still around, he's tremendously uh, strong <laughs> in the sense that he'd be over 100. So I don't believe that he's probably still with us. But if he is, you know, good for him. Uh, he's uh, one of the faces, even if you don't know the name. Uh, he's one of those guys like uh, Fulvio Mingozzi. Uh, who just shows up in a bunch of these movies. Um, he's in pretty much everything Argeno did through Deep Red, with the exception of Bird with the Crystal Plumage. He's not in that one. But he's in all the other films and the TV stuff uh, that Argeno did during that period. And he's also in films by Margariti, Fulci, Solima, Lenzi, Martino, etc. So, very familiar face. Never really had a big, substantial role, but uh, always kind of fun to see him. Yeah, I mean, I, I would define him. He's the human JMB. Uh, you know, he, he he appears. He's like that little thing you look for. Uh, sometimes his appearances will be extremely fleeting. He will literally pop up in a film for a single scene and then disappear. He usually ends up, because of his very uh, slick and distinguished face, he always plays some sort of bureaucrat, a lawyer, um, some sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, sometimes a detective uh never never the main one never the lead but uh he will appear very very often um and uh yes he's he's a bit like um, although his roles would be are definitely more substantial uh <clears throat> more noticeable but he reminds me a little bit of uh, carla mancini who's mm -hmm. another uh you know one of those uh figures that just pops up everywhere um but then <clears throat> uh, tom felighi um, or, or Feleghi, um 
is, uh, you know, his his name always gets changed. Sometimes he appears with one L, some, but most of all, uh, it's the last letter of his surname that was changed. Sometimes it's with a Y. In this case, it's with an E, with an I. Um, but yes, he. This this film, this film is. Um, it's very, it's very, it's a very strange film to kind of place uh, in Stelvio Massi's career because Massi has a very neat um, filmography. Uh, his, especially in the 1970s, is very compact. Uh, it's, it, it is extremely neat. I mean, um, he just has this rough, sort of rough beginning uh, with his first two films because let's uh, remind who is listening to us that. Uh, Five Women for the Killer is in fact Massey's second film as a director. His very first film, which was uh, equally unlucky, is uh, stars Leonard Mann, uh, Leonardo Mancella, and it's uh, Macro Giuda Uccide il Giovedì. And it's a film that has pretty much disappeared. Uh, it, uh, it was a flop. Um, and as far as I know, has never been released in even in DVD. Um, so it, it's he really did have a rough beginning with directing, and maybe this is connected to the fact that, as most people who knew Massi have told me over the years, he was very adamant about beginning his career as a director. Uh, he was not particularly uh, motivated to do so. Uh, he was very very happy. Um, you know, with his work as a cinematographer, and he was, he was going very well. He was in a, uh, very much uh, under request. He um, in demand. He he was prolific. Um, he was very much loved by the community. Uh, most of the DOPs I've interviewed have always spent very kind words about Massi as being a lovely man and very supportive of his colleagues. Um, in fact, uh, Massi was pivotal in giving Sergio Duffizzi his opportunity to pass from uh, camera operator to cinematographer. Sergio Duffizzi is obviously, you know, uh, uh, as most people know, he's uh, an incredibly important cinema cinematographer responsible for lighting such films as Don't Torture a Duckling, um, Cannibal Holocaust, uh, uh, the um, House on the Edge of the Park, uh, so you know, and as well as uh, kind of uh, more ambitious films, he, he worked also with Monicelli and Nanni Loi and Alberto Sordi. So, very important cinematographer who's still with us and doing very well. Uh, and he has told me, you know, that Massi, uh, you know, gave him the opportunity to debut by stepping down from a film, uh, and yes, and basically, you know. Uh, leaving leaving space for for him for the Fizzi to uh, to really you know jumpstart his work as a cinematographer. So Massi was very happy to continue uh, as such. But uh, according to Danilo, his son, uh, who as I mentioned before became starting with Emergency Squad, his father's biggest collaborator, uh, and worked. Worked with Stelvio both as um, an AD and then later as second unit director, producer, and also a writer, like in the case of Convoy Busters. He actually wrote the story uh, for his father. Uh, Danilo told me that it was his mother, Stelvio's wife, that really pushed him 
Uh, and this is a recurring thing about, you know, a lot of directors and cinematographers have told me, you know, they were they were kind of nudged by their significant others in uh, in kind of taking that step. And apparently this this was the case with Stelvio Massi. So maybe this kind of, you know, maybe he wasn't taking it too seriously initially. Uh, and uh, and yes, because things definitely change for the best with Emergency Squad and he will become hands down, one of the most important uh, Polizisti directors in Italy. Yeah, I mean, he's he's 45 at the time of this filming, so, um, you know, he's getting, uh, you know, relatively late start as a director, although he's, as you've indicated, had a very distinguished career as a cinematographer and an operator. Uh, he's worked on some significant films. I mean, he had three films in theatrical release in 1974 as a director, which is pretty impressive when you think about it. Uh, two of them um, were shot in 73, uh, Judas Kills on a Friday, his, his rather blighted, um, you know, first film that you indicated already, an Emergency Squad, of course, um, you know, which came out in April of 74. Then we have this film, uh, which is not released until December of 74, and mm, I, it's not sure for sure when it was shot, looking at the scenery and so forth. I would assume it was shot probably in the summer of 74, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Uh, at which point he would have been 45 years old. So he's already getting some good experience under his belt, and he's he's getting better, as you say, um, you know, as as he's learning on the job, as it were. I mean, I think Emergency Squad arguably could be his best film as a director. Um, it's certainly the one that I'm the most fond of, but he would go on to do some really excellent films in the Polizieski genre. Uh, think of things like um, uh, the Mark Trilogy with Franco Gaspari. They're, they're quite good. And his movies with Maurizio Merli, like Highway Ray, racer convoy busters and so forth lots of good stuff and obviously it was a genre that he felt a great deal of affinity to because it was dynamic there was lots of action there was lots of opportunity for interesting uh, sort of staging dynamic camera work lots of handheld stuff here he's working in a more sort of classical restrained kind of format which is the giallo which doesn't really lend itself to that type of staging he's trying to bring that to it as i've mentioned in the film there's some very interesting offbeat camera angles lots of zoom shots lots of handheld shots uh, lots of opportunities for interesting cutting and things like that but there's also a lot of talk especially when we get into the police investigation scenes the bane of the existence of a lot of these films where actors tend to sit and expo you know expound a great deal of expository dialogue um, where you just get a sense that he's tr he's he's kind of rebelling against the stagnant nature of the material by trying to make it as dynamic as possible with as much moving camera work as he possibly can um, i can tell you that you know finally seeing this film in a uh, much improved transfer and in its full scope aspect ratio i have a much deeper appreciation for it now than i did before because previous versions of the film looked absolutely dreadful um full screen sort of blurry uh, faded not very attractive to look at at all so seeing it in this form now i can have a better appreciation of it and see what he's trying to bring to it i don't know that it's entirely successful uh, i certainly don't think it's uh, it's one of the top jelly um in general although of the by my count anyway bearing in mind that you know some people count certain films as jello films that i do not count and vice versa by my count i'd say there were about 13 of these films in italian cinemas in 1974 and this is actually one of the better ones of that group i'd say the top of the crop was probably uh delamano's what have they done to your daughters which of course is a hybrid 
with the uh, Polizio genre as well. So it's part Polizio, part Giallo. And by this stage, the Polizio is definitely eclipsing the Giallo in terms of popular tastes at the box office. Uh, but there was some solid competition thanks to the likes of uh, Lenzi's Spasmo, uh, Duccio Tassari's Puzzle with Luke Miranda, and uh, a film I'm very fond of, Giuseppe Bonatti's The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, um, which features Renato Rossini from this film. So there were some good ones. Not such good ones. Uh, obviously, another Giallo uh, Polizio um, hybrid uh, movie uh, by Gianni, Mara, uh, Gianni Manera called Order Signed in White, which is absolutely atrocious. Uh, Luigi Bezzella's Black Man. Uh, the Girl in Room 2A by William Rose. Those are some really bad ones. So when you put them up against some of those other ones, this one looks particularly stellar, I'd have to say, even if it's not really one of the absolute top examples. But it is nice that it's finally giving a, uh, getting a nice release uh, in a much improved transfer, which enables us to really appreciate what Massey brought to it. Yes, uh, yes, definitely. I mean, the interesting thing is that you can you can see within five women for the killer a lot of massey's trademark styles uh idiosyncrasies you know all everything that will be heightened and really uh become stronger with the subsequent films this this chronologically uh was the second film he he directed uh, emergency squad came later and uh, danilo massey remembers uh <clears throat> talking about um, the uh, locations and the casting of Emergency Squad as Massey, his father, was shooting this film. So this definitely came before, um, but you really see within this film a lot of the elements that will be the handheld camera, of course, the, the trying to make things as dynamic as possible, certain minimalism, you know, um, he... Definitely Massey was not a pretentious director. You know, his staging is as simple as possible, uh, as effective as possible. Uh, he didn't, he, he definitely had a predilection for simple narrative. Uh, his films are never overly complicated. They're very much based on kind of uh, um, archetype, archetypal characters uh, dynamic scenes. He really works very much on on singular set pieces. Um, unlike Umberto Lenzi, uh, for example, uh, and the two we'll get to that actually had a massive uh, clash. The you know later on towards the late seventies. Uh, unlike unlike Umberto Lenzi, which always infused his films with a strong uh, political element, his crime films, of course, I'm talking about, but also his Jolly, his early Jolly. He would always infuse his films with political element and uh, with recurring themes, and he would really kind of work very much on dialogue and try to. Uh, he really kind of Lenzi, together with his, you know, made made have been Manino or Sacchetti. He, whoever was writing, he would always try to innovate the film linguistically. Uh, and that is obviously more, most uh, most appreciable in the Italian version of these films. But Massi was not like that. He was he was a much more essential director. Uh, not, and I'm not uh, at all saying he he his films are poor. They just simply looked more at the uh, kind of narrative narrative 
pivotal points of the story, try to enrich them as much as possible from a, a dynamic point of view and and really work more on the iconography, on the iconography of the film. He, he was a very simple, straightforward director and, um, and people seem to really appreciate his, uh, his style because most of his films from Emergency Squad up to, I would say, probably Speed Cross, that would be when things really started uh, uh, changing for the worse, not only for Massey, but really for so many directors that, you know, had left a, a significant uh, mark on, on this genre, on the on the Polizisco. Uh, and within that window, uh, and we're talking about a lot of films, most of them were box office hits. Uh, obviously, the Mark trilogy, um, and the most of the medley films which you mentioned uh, but also uh, what Massey considered his best work which uh, is cross shot uh, kind of a probably his narratively speaking his most ambitious film la legge violenta della squadra di crimine a very long italian title uh, which translate the violent law of the anti crime squad uh, and that film stars um, Lino Capolicchio, which many people will remember as uh, the star of The House of Laughing Windows, John Saxon, Lee Jacob playing a blind um, crime boss. So Crossshot is, um, uh, according to Massi himself, um, something he stated, um, you know, I believe in 1998, um, when he was interviewed by uh, um, genre genre magazine uh, Nocturno Cinema stated that um, Crossshot is his is his best film, uh, definitely in the Polizisco genre. And it, and it is an interesting film. It was all shot in the uh, south of Italy near Bari uh, and stars John Saxon, Lino Capolicchio and uh, Lee Jacob playing a uh, blind crime boss. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fine film. Unfortunately, one that hasn't had a decent release, uh, certainly not in the U.S. on uh, on Blu-ray. Um, so hopefully at some point that will happen. But it's interesting you should mention that this was actually shot before um, Emergency Squad because that, that kind of throws my chronology that I had understood uh, out of whack. So I need to correct that in the sense that, um, you know, presumably then that would mean that this film was, uh, was shot earlier, much earlier than I had anticipated, which... Would seem to indicate it may have sat on the shelf for a little bit. Um, you know, if, if the uh, release dates that I found are accurate, uh, indicating it came out at the end of 1974, uh, whereas the Emergency Squad came out in the spring of 74, yeah, it, that would seem to indicate that this probably sat on the shelf for a while, which is not unheard of. Of course, it's not uncommon in some of these cases that films, for one reason or another, usually because the market is so glutted with other films of a similar type. Uh, they just kind of put them on the back burner for a little bit till they decide to throw it out there. So interesting that uh, that, that is the case, but not a, at all unexpected and certainly not unique in that sense either. Uh, you know, as I was saying before, Giallo 
at this time is still at a at a certain degree of popularity, but it's definitely starting to um, it's definitely starting to go downhill a little bit. The following year, '75, you get another uh, Baker's dozen of Giallo films, including the real standouts. Obviously, Deep Red, uh, of course, is the real standout, but also uh, the Sunday Woman by Luigi Comencini, a very interesting film. Uh, and Luigi Cozzi's The Killer Must Kill Again, which is far and away, I think, the best film he's ever directed. Uh, as well as the utterly abysmal The Police Are Blundering in the Dark by Helio Colombo, which uh, is one of those movies that must be seen in order to be disbelieved. Uh, but by 1976, there's really only three, at least by my count. Um, but they're all good. <laughs> That's the upside. you got Plot of Fear by Paolo Cavara, The House of the Laughing Windows by Pupi Avati, and Strange Shadows in an Empty Room by Alberto De Martino, uh, another kind of giallo polizio um, you know, a hybrid film. Compare that to, say, 1972, where you had, at least by my count, about 33 of these movies playing in theaters. So you can tell it's definitely starting to go downhill in terms of overall popularity. And I think a lot of that had to do with the uh, the emergence of the Poliziesco and, and the uh, incredible popularity of the films of people like uh, Maurizio Merli and Franco Nero and Luke Miranda and other actors like that were really making their names in at this time. Yes, I mean, uh, another element that kind of makes it uh, uh, less strange that this film would uh, stay on the shelf for some time is the fact that we are talking about a fairly... Um, we're talking about a... Um, uh, I wouldn't say improvised, but definitely a very small production. Uh, Carlo Maglietto, you know, did not deal with big operations here. We're not talking about a film uh, by Dania. Uh, we're not talking about a Luciano Martino or Mino Loi production. Um, we're not talking about uh, Mario Cicchigori or any of these sort of producers. Uh, Carlo Ponti, uh, which had, um, you know, kind of inserted himself uh, in the giallo genre with torso by martino you know these these were big producers maybe dealing with smaller films definitely in the case of somebody like carlo ponti but they were very you know they, they were secure operations they they knew what they were doing they had distribution in place and the the whole hierarchy was very very well uh, structured in this case like most of Mayeto's films we're talking about something a bit more yeah, you know, slightly rougher, uh, definitely a, a smaller sort of film. Um, it's not uncommon that some of Mayeto's films were interrupted and then picked up again later on. So, so it makes sense that this film would take a while to be um, finished and end up in theaters. Um, we talked about Albertazzi, we mentioned Ilona Staller, uh, Francis Matthews. It's probably worth mentioning and talking a little bit about Renato Rossini. Uh, uh, Howard Ross. Um, Howard Ross is quite a character. I had the pleasure of interviewing him for this release. Um, he begins his career in, uh, not surprisingly, given his uh, quite uh, striking physique, he begins his career in the very early, very early 60s. He appears in... Uh, I believe his first appearance is in Esther and the King. Uh, and between 1960 and 1965, 66, he really kind of uh, deals nearly exclusively with peplums, with uh, kind of uh, mythological 
fantasy films and um, kind of uh, uh, Sandaloni, uh, as they were um, kind of ironically defined in Italy at the time, which literally means big sandals. Um, and uh, and then kind of does pretty much everything. Uh, once the, the peplum phase kind of fizzles out, he will leave uh, a relatively significant mark in the Western genre um, and then will participate in Polizisti, erotic films, Jolly. Um, he will work from, you know, with, with, with everybody, Lucio Fulci, Umberto Lenzi, Alfonso Brescia, and will remain very prolific uh, throughout the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Um, he, he was... Um, uh, he brought to his characters a slight, um, how can we say, um, a sexual ambiguity, uh, definitely a menacing, uh, a menacing vibe to all of his characters. Uh, not surprisingly, he played a lot of villains, a lot of killers, a lot of thugs. Um, and here he plays the detective, which is uh, a first for him and definitely not the sort of character he would usually play in films at all. Um, he is also a particularly suave, uh, elegant uh, detective, as we can see from the scene. Uh, he's dressed in, you know, uh, very, very, very well, nearly in a kind of a, a slim Al Capone kind of, kind of... Uh, <laughs> attire um he reminds me a little bit of uh giuliano Gemma in uh, tenebrae uh, in his look absolutely yes and and speaking of Gemma, that's uh Gemma was a contemporary of uh of ross obviously uh you know a better actor and definitely a more successful actor um another jambi ashtray there um yes and uh but they did start another one there um and oh yeah <laughs> but they uh they did start pretty much during the same period and within the same uh, genre, because obviously with La Rivano e Titani by Duccio de Sari and many other films, Giuliano Gemma really becomes big with Peplums. And obviously, despite never uh, Howard Ross never being officially a stuntman, obviously productions would take advantage of his physique and his athletic abilities, and, uh, and he would end up doing a lot of his own stunts, uh, whereas Giuliano Gemma was actually a stuntman. Maybe not many people know that, but he actually did work officially as as a uh, stunt performer. So there is a there is a connection there. Um, and Howard Ross um, never really became a lead. Uh, this is definitely one of the bigger roles he's played. Uh, once the peplum genre fizzled, he'd become more of a character actor. Um, and to just add a little gossip in the mix, um, Apparently, the relationship on this film between Stelvio Massi and Howard Ross was not uh, stellar. Uh, Danilo Massi has told me that uh, um, his father uh, found him a little stuck up, a little arrogant, uh, and um, not a terribly good actor. Uh, and in fact, um, later on, uh, had the opportunity of... Uh, you know, having him star in, again in one of his films and refused him. Uh, told the producer he would not want Ross again. So there we go. A little, a little bit of drama on this film as well. Uh, 
Oh, there's always drama to be had. There's no question about that. Um, yeah, he did a number of Jally. He's in uh, Mario Bava's Five Dollars for an August Moon. He has a good role in that, uh, which is very much an ensemble piece. It's not a, it's not a movie that's carried by a particular star. There's a lot of familiar faces, but it's all everybody kind of gets their moments in that film. Uh, I mentioned A Killer Reserve Nine Seats before, which I'm very fond of. It's one of the rare Giallo films that also has a really uh, indisputable supernatural component. It's like Hatchet for the Honeymoon in that sense. Like you can't really logically explain away the supernatural in that film. It's just, it's kind of there. Um, and a really interesting one, uh, probably the only Jallo set in Australia, one of the relatively few ones that's actually based on a true story. Uh, the Pajama Girl case um, starring Ray Milland, uh, which I'm you know, extremely fond of as well. Uh, you know, typically, usually playing, at the very least, as you say, ambiguous characters, usually out-and-out -out nasty characters in those films. One of his best showcases is New York Ripper, where he plays the, um, he's essentially a red herring in the film. He's a pervert, um, a Greek immigrant uh, with missing fingers on his right hand, which, you know, denotes <laughs> he must be up to no good. He's got he's got a deformity, so he's no good. Uh, but he's very effective in that. Uh, of course, Fulci also used him again in the, uh, the New Gladiators and so forth, so... He just has that face that is well suited to villainy, so it's kind of the one, one of the joys of seeing him in this movie is definitely seeing him playing, as you said, a kind of suave, sophisticated, uh, and and competent police inspector. Um, he's not one of the police inspectors in these films who comes across as a blithering idiot. He doesn't come across as being you know sort of terribly prejudiced or corrupt or anything like that. He's just pretty. Pretty good, pretty efficient. He's not necessarily Columbo, but he gets the job done. Um, and I think he does a, a nice job in it. And uh, yeah, I did definitely think watching him in this, seeing him in the uh, uh, form-fitting suits and so forth, looking very elegant, yeah, definitely reminds me very much of that very slick uh, Germani character that uh, Jamma plays so well in Tenebrae. So yeah, he's definitely enjoyable in this movie. And uh, uh, we can see here too, again, uh, more of Massey's uh, visual ingenuity here with the flashing colored lighting and so forth uh, always again trying to add a little bit of dynamic interest and quality to the staging and uh, he does manage to get a few pretty decently staged suspense sequences in the film um, I don't know about you when, when you watch enough of these films you know you do start to pick up on certain recurring things that are uh, indicators of where the plot is going to go and on that level I have to say I do find the final reveal rather predictable <laughs> because there are certain things that happen that just pretty much tell me okay yep this this is probably who the killer is and indeed I was correct yes yeah no I would definitely agree with that um, personally the the jolly I prefer are the ones in which uh, uh, the narrative gets surreal uh, where it's more about the, the it's more about the trip than uh, the destination. Um, you know, this this is despite being you know we're fully in the Argento dominated part of uh, you know stage of the Jolly. Uh, it does have elements I find, especially in the production design, uh, that kind of tie it to the pre-Argento Giallo. There's it's one of those films that has a pre-Argento vibe to it. Um, and uh, uh, and obviously there's the, the the sexual element. It's a film that, as we we have seen up to this point, is full of nudity. Um, it's very like most. To be fair, this is more of a Mayito trade um, than than a Massi uh, element because Massi was uh, not a director that ever 
kind of uh, uh, felt particularly comfortable with uh, nudity and uh, and sex. Uh, there's hardly anything uh, in his subsequent films. You, you know, to find another sexually charged film, you'd have to go to the late 80s with his only other giallo-esque kind of film. Uh, but and we'll talk about that in a in a moment. But you know, most of his career, he's he's always between the two kind of polarizing elements, sex and uh, and violence. He'd always moved more towards violence than sex. That that is uh, is definitely. Although he even in that respect, he would never be uh, terribly exploitative. This is really his most uh, in the seventies most exploitation film, uh, openly exploitation film. Um, he was he was um, even in his uh, in his uh, Polizeski that you know speaking of trademark scenes you would always have you know the inspector the co commissioner the the detective you know getting getting up the morning after uh, getting dressed at the you know tying tying uh, yes um, you know uh, buttoning his shirt and whatever and. Most directors would always have some sort of top, topless scene, you know, the woman, the the wife in the bed. But he avoided that completely. He would uh, he would not go there. Uh, so he he was not an. It's not a, a, a cinema his that's overly sexual. Uh, so it's it's this really kind of is it. This is the film where you know if you want massy dealing with nudity, this is pretty much it. Yeah, and it, there's. To a certain extent, the same could also certainly be said of Mario Bava. Although there was a sexual component in his films, he really wasn't particularly interested in, or indeed comfortable, uh, doing nude scenes. Uh, he he really very often he would entrust Lamberto uh, with doing scenes like that, uh, as in Bay of Blood, for example, and Lisa and the Devil scenes that he didn't really particularly want to shoot himself. Uh, even Argento, um, his his films really until the late 90s when you get into something like phantom of the opera there's really very little in the way of female nudity in his films uh there there is again a sexual component to the imagery uh there's a lot of symbolic elements and fetishistic things that come into the films especially in something like tenebrae for example but there's not really a lot in the way of exploitation-esque uh naked skin in those films so massey is definitely in kind of similar terrain uh, as far as his uh, films are concerned. And as we've been saying before, this is not a genre with which he was particularly comfortable. Uh, I think it's safe to say that if he were better established by this stage in his career as a director, he would have turned this movie down. Uh, it's not something that he would have really been... I mean, he's not... I'm sure he did some polishing on the script. I would not be surprised. I, I would be surprised if he just simply took a script and shot it exactly as it was written. I wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, he tinkered with it a little bit here and there, maybe removed some dialogue to make things a little bit more visual, things like that. Um, but on the whole, this is definitely not something that uh, really was in his wheelhouse, so to speak. I mean, late 80s, he comes back, he does one of those kind of sleazy uh late 80s uh, giallo erotic thriller type films called arabella black angel um which quite frankly is not really particularly worth seeing um it is available on blu-ray you can certainly seek it out if you want to um but i think you know honestly given the choice between this one and that one i'll take this one uh flaws and all i think it's a more interesting film i think it's uh it's a more you know visually interesting film as well and, uh, you know, you do get a sense of a director here, at the very least, is trying to kind of elevate the material. Whereas I suspect by that stage in the late 80s that uh, Massey was directing some of those films, 
he may have felt slightly defeated by that stage and realized uh, there's only so much I can do with this and it's really ultimately still going to be a piece of garbage so he's not quite as invested by that stage although I suspect still trying to make a good film but there's only so much you can do with certain material yes I mean speaking of um, Massey in the 80s uh, you do get the impression I mean on the one side like just as Umberto Lenzi managed to do, he did continue working. Um, he's definitely among the most prolific directors um, of the 80s. Um, but you really get a sense, even more so than, you know, in the cases of Umberto Lenzi or Deodato, uh, Martino and, you know, other uh, or Massi's colleagues of that same generation, you really do get the sense that Massi's career just unraveled. It really got, I mean, his 80s filmography is very, very messy. Uh, there's a little bit of everything there. Um, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a horror show, really. I mean, you get uh, Mondo, Mondo Cane sequels uh, like Mondo Cane 2000, Mondo Cane 2000, L'Orore Continua, uh, which, uh, if possible, are even more, they're sleazier, they're more violent. Uh, obviously, they insert um, elements that are, that attain more to the, to the 80s. So you get a lot of uh, AIDS talk in those films, uh, a lot more drugs compared, so drugs and, and AIDS and uh, um, uh, different, and definitely more uh, sexual elements to it compared to the films by Jacobetti Prosperi and Cavada from the 1960s. Uh, they're very, very sleazy films. Uh, you get um, action films. There's even Ero e l'Inferno, which was actually uh, released as Inglorious Bastards 2. Um, and then he directed the, a black exploitation film starring Fred Williamson called The Black Cobra, uh, which actually, funny enough, had um, uh, three sequels um, directed and kind of, you know, directed, produced, put together by another um, father, father-son team. Uh, because if the Black Cobra, obviously Stevio Massi directed it, but Danilo Massi wrote the script and directed the second unit, then Black Cobra 2 and 3 were directed by Eduardo Margheriti uh, and um, Antonio Margheriti's son. And Antonio Margheriti, as Eduardo has stated more than once, did help him with that. Uh, it was kind of uh, a collaboration between the two. Um, and then we've got a mysterious uh third sequel, fourth film of the series, Detective Malone, Black Cobra 4, directed by phantomatic Bob Collins, uh, who, according to some uh, sources, uh, is actually uh, an Umberto Lenzi pseudonym. Uh, but, you know, I it's most for the most part uh, just recycled material from the previous films. Fred Fred Williamson uh, doesn't even know the film exists, uh, so it's more of a Frankenstein film. But that aside, uh, Massey really does pretty much everything. He does two Neapolitan um, Neapolitan um, uh, melodrama starring Mario Merola. Uh, uh, he he does yes Arabella. He, 
you really do get a sense that he he was up for anything. Uh, you know, as long as he could work and keep the momentum going, he was game. Um, he did hold things as as I mentioned before. We did hold things together in the in the early eighties with the kind of the the last medley films and uh, a, a couple of action films, among which Speed Cross, starring Fabio Testi. But even even those films, uh, they don't have this quite the same taste uh, as the, the films from the previous decade, and they do get uh, interrupted by definitely uh, substandard films uh, um, um, too. So it, it is a very messy period for Massi. Yeah, it was true of a lot of directors during this period. As you, you mentioned, Lenzi, he's another one that if you go back and look at his filmography through the 60s and 70s, um, it's it's pretty consistent. I mean, it's it's generally of a very high quality, and then you get into the 80s and all bets are off. Um, you know, you mentioned the Detective Malone film, which is very mysterious. I mean, can find no real evidence that uh, Lenzi really had anything to do with that. If he did, maybe as a kind of post-production supervisor, um, but really, as you say kind of a movie that's that's put together with uh mostly uh stock footage and a little bit of new footage that could have been shot by just about anybody i mean there's nothing to indicate uh the lensy touch in the film in the new material so uh it's one of those sort of bizarre films that just kind of cobbled together and then there's a pseudonymous uh director on it that uh you know could be anybody uh so it's 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 one of those great mysteries that has never really been completely solved although i i personally don't think that uh Lindsay was uh involved with calling action or cut uh maybe in terms of post-production possibly uh he was doing a lot of things like that at that time uh uncredited stuff which you know very often was the case uh, other directors like Alberto De Martino too were doing a lot of behind-the-scenes things that they weren't credited on, uh, you know, just pretty much to keep a hand in and have something to do. So these directors, mostly in the 80s, their filmography started to really suffer. I mean, with the exceptions of people like Argento uh, and Fulci, to a certain extent, until his health gave out, and, and that created its own set of problems. These were directors who were thriving because they were associated with a a genre that had a degree of international acceptability. Uh, their films could be exported, so they were kind of given opportunities to make things on a certain level that a lot of the other directors were not. Directors like um, Fernando de Leo, for example, just gave up. He just quit. He stopped making films well before he probably could have done. Uh, De Martino is another one who just pretty much had enough after a, a couple of bad experiences. So it's the time to call it a day. Um, although I suspect a lot of them really held out hopes that eventually they might be able to get back to it. Uh, we know that Lindsay, for example, really, really wanted to get back to directing films. It was something he was just, you know, probably sick not being able to be on a set uh, barking orders at people and unfortunately just wasn't to be. So it was a bad period altogether and it's, it's not unusual looking at the filmographies of a lot of these directors that we see directors of talent and taste uh, who distinguished themselves throughout the 1960s and 70s really getting into some ugly films, uh, unfortunately. Um, in the case of uh, Stelvio Massi, one of the things we should mention too, we've talked about his work as a uh, as a uh, director, obviously, you know, and we've alluded to his career as a cinematographer and a camera operator, but a significant credit in this context as a cinematographer was a giallo for Giuliano Carnameo, uh, also known as Anthony Ascot. Uh, the Case of the Bloody Iris, uh, one of those 
drops of blood on Jennifer's body, I, I believe is the uh, Italian translation anyway, the uh, English translation of the Italian title. Um, with Edwidge Finek and George Hilton, it's one of those films that you would assume was directed by Sergio Martino because it has all the usual other people involved. But no, it was Carnemeo with uh, Stelvio Massey doing very arresting camera work and uh, lighting on that film. It's a very attractively shot film. So... You know, there's that connection with the genre as well. And speaking of cinematography, of course we must. We should also mention that his uh, DP on this film is uh, Sergio Rubini, who had also shot uh, uh, his his earlier films as well as a director. Um, and uh, you know, he would also uh, had been an operator for Stelvio Massi on things like They Call Him Cemetery and Sartan is Here, Trade Your Pistol for a Coffin. And he shot a, a number of other films for Massey later on, too, like Convoy Busters and The Iron Commissioner and so forth. So uh, he's had some interesting credits, some low-grade stuff, too. He did, like, The Red Monks and uh, Dawn of the Mummy. So he's uh, kind of hit or miss in terms of the films that he worked on. But he does, I think, a pretty good, solid job on this. And I'm sure having an expert cinematographer as your director was uh, probably fairly nerve-wracking for any of these cinematographers in terms of meeting the uh, expectations of their masters. Yes, I mean, uh, according to Danilo Massi, um, you know, he was very much hands-on uh, as uh, with, with to go in regards to the cinematography and camera operating when he was a director, Stavio Massi. Um, he was always respectful. Um, he was very soft-spoken, Massi. Uh, he was not, uh, he was very anti-Lensi kind of director. He would not raise his voice. Uh, he, he was very soft-spoken, always had his cigar firmly between his teeth. Um, you know, there was uh, a lot of joking around uh, about, you know, when when is it that Massi, with that Sergio Massi, doesn't have a, a cigar in his mouth, you know. Um, you know, Luke, Luke Merenda, who was directed twice by Stelvio Massi in the last round, and Destruction Force said, you know, sometimes he would keep the cigar uh, next to him as he was eating at uh, at the dinner table and drive everybody crazy. Uh, but he was he was a very kind man on set. Uh, that's um, that's kind of what everybody seems to to say. But he was very hands on. Uh, you know, he liked things done in a certain way, especially when it came to the camera operating, the camera, camera operating aspect of things, and uh, would not have a problem kind of jumping in and doing things himself. Um, speaking of cinematographers in general in the 1970s, despite the Italian film industry uh, was definitely going through a lot of change from the 60s and 70s and not in the best of ways, uh, some, you know, certain fractures uh, were starting to be visible by the mid-70s. Uh, it was an extremely prolific uh, period still, very prolific, and it continued to be as, as um, just as prolific throughout the 80s, but definitely budgets were getting smaller for the most part and uh, a lot of more uh, kind of improvised producers and directors started appearing, but there was still a lot of demand, and the industry reacted to this by having um, cinematographers make their debut uh, as directors because they were, uh, you know, they they were definitely reliable. They knew they were a figure that could, uh, you know, stage a film, direct a film. Uh, they knew the linguistic elements that you needed to know to direct a film. 
and they could always keep an eye on the cinematography. Uh, sometimes they would do both, so you know productions could uh, could pay them basically. Well, the same, you know, just one uh, one fee and have two figures um, uh, for the price of one. So a lot of cinematographers started directing films in the 70s. Of course, this wasn't uncommon before. I mean, there were Enzo Barboni, Mario Bava, of course, and then later on, Joe D'Amato, uh, Arise Massacesi. But these are all, and Massi, of course, these are all directors that, uh, you know, basically turned, uh, sorry, cinematographers that basically turned into directors full time. But we find a lot of cinematographers popping up just for one or two films and then going back to dealing exclusively with the lighting. Um, we, we find uh, Armando Nannuzzi, uh, Luciano Tovoli, Roberto Girometti, who was also Stelvio Massi's friend. Um, uh, Roberto Girometti directs the three films between the, the 70s and 80s. Um, Carlo Di Palma, uh, loads of, of these people were asked to, you know, uh, confront the rising demand of Italian films uh, by stepping into the director's chair and, uh, um, and you know, some with various degrees of uh, when it comes to res the results, uh, but they were definitely, you know, always competent. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of uncredited work, uh, Sergio Salvati, um, uh, uh, but also uh, Roberto de Torre Piazzoli. Uh, of course, you know, most people know de Torre Piazzoli is the, the one behind uh, most of the Asunidis production. So Stelvio Massi is uh, definitely the um, most glorious example of um, a trend in the 70s of cinematographers needing to uh, sit in the director's chair and deal with this uh, rise in demand, in the market's demand. Vuol vedere il bambino? Sì. And of course we should note, uh, it's already passed us by, but this uh, notion of Pascal Revolt uh, our, our leading lady here, um, having uh, survived an attack. Mark that well. If you know these films well enough, it's, it is significant <laughs> that somebody has survived an attack. That tells you everything you need to know in terms of where the plot is going to go. Um, I mean, there were other, obviously other examples of this too outside of the Italian film industry. One of the, uh, two of the great British cinematographers uh, were Freddie Francis and Jack Cardiff. Uh, both ended up becoming directors as well and having kind of spotty careers as directors. I mean, Freddie Francis, for example, had distinguished himself in the 1960s as a director of horror films. Um, the problem was he hated horror films and he got tired of making them and eventually it started the show. So he was lucky enough to be able to transition back to being a cinematographer, working for the likes of David Lynch and Martin Scorsese. Uh, and winning another Academy Award for glory and so forth and so on. So he had a successful uh, transition back. Um, and Jack Cardiff had gone from being uh, really one of the great cinematographers, especially with color, uh, to directing some, you know, interesting but not necessarily terribly uh, distinguished films. Uh, but, you know, these, these, uh, these things did happen. These kind of career shifts did take place. Uh, as you say, there were, there were definite... Um, uh, economic benefits to that with producers and so forth as well. You know, sometimes you were getting more bang for your buck that way. But regardless, um, in terms of the crew on this film, I think a couple of names that deserve a, a brief shout out. One of the assistant directors on this film is uh, Giorgio Maruzio, 
um, who has only just recently departed uh, at the age of 83. He died on the 16th of January of this year. Um, he is best remembered uh, for working extensively with Lucio Fulci, uh, going all the way back to working with him on television commercials and things like that, but also uh, co-writing movies like The Beyond and The House by the Cemetery. Um, so he's in the mix on this film as uh, a sort of second assistant director. He's not the primary assistant on this film. Um, but also we should mention our composer, Giorgio Gaslini, very distinguished jazz musician who during this period of time seemed poised to take over as Dario Argento's go-to composer after he and Morricone had had a little bit of a falling out on the uh, soundtrack of Four Flies and Grey Velvet. He had scored the Door to Darkness TV series, uh, The Five Days, and uh, had started scoring Deep Red until Argento decided his approach was a little too old-fashioned, so he gave him the boot. Uh, although his music is in the film, and some of it's played by Goblin, some of it, you know, it's uh, there's there's uh, you know more conventional kind of music uh, by Gaslini in that film, and other pieces that are sort of Goblinized and made into something far more dynamic than originally intended, but. Uh, you know, he also had his background, uh, Antonioni, he had scored uh, La Notte uh, in the early 1960s, although I think probably his best film work was for Giorgio Ferroni on The Night of the Devils. He did a really beautiful soundtrack for that film. Um, again, working very much in the jazz idiom for this soundtrack, um, which I think works well enough in the film. I mean, it's uh, I think it's a pretty good score on the whole. Yes, no, Gaslini definitely... Uh, scores scores this um, in a cl quite classy way. I mean, his approach is very classy. It's uh, it's uh, uh, definitely one of the scores I prefer from um, uh, Stelvio Massi's filmography. Um, Massi will be very much tied to another Stelvio, uh, which is Stelvio Cipriani. Uh, which is kind of funny because Stelvio is a, quite a rare name in in in, in Italian. Uh, so we've got the two Stelvios working side by side for many films. Um, uh, obviously, you know Cipriani is very famous for uh, maybe not quite recycling but readapting scores over and over and over again. Uh, we find very similar scores in a number of uh, Massi's films, but they always work. They always work very effectively. Um, and Massi, uh, sorry, the other Stelvio, Cipriani always seems to score uh, kind of the melancholic overtones at times of of the, the stories, and so really adds a layer uh, to the films very effectively. Uh, I particularly like the score for Un Poliziotto Scomodo Convoy Busters, but also uh, um, Oh, emergency emergency squad, squad, of course, very classic, kind of very polar, very French, uh, very reminiscent of uh, many French polar films. Uh, but also Poliziotto um, Senza Paura, which I believe is called uh, Hot Fuzz, possibly, um, with uh, Maurizio Merli and incredibly, speaking of, uh, you know, strange, strange actors appearing in Italian films, unlikely actors, Joan Collins. Um, uh, so that that has a quite a, an effective score. So they definitely yes, they definitely found a, a good relationship. They they connected. But this Gaslini score is is definitely up there among uh, the best of Massi's career. Yeah, I think so. I mean, usually directors find that composer uh, that that kind of defines the sound of their films uh, when 
Lindsay met up with uh, Michelizzi. I mean, it was just a match made in heaven, for example. Obviously, Argento with Goblin. Uh, there, there are various other examples, but uh, Cipriani really did some of his best work for Massey. I, I think particularly, uh, I've always been very fond of his score for Emergency Squad, as well as the other ones you mentioned. But Emergency Squad just has this wonderful kind of mournful quality to it that I think works very well. Um, and it, it's, it's slightly less recycled <laughs> than some of the other scores, which, I mean, I love them. Don't get me wrong. I've got them all. I, I listen to them all. But yet there is a definite uh, similarity, let's say, that, that comes across in a lot of Cipriani's scores. Um, but uh, Gasolini certainly was a... Uh, it's interesting that during this period of time, you know, he's uh, starting to get involved somewhat into the giallo. Uh, obviously, he's going to be involved in Deep Red right after this, although that did not have a happy ending for him. Uh, he's nevertheless still credited. He's involved. His music is in the film, and it's one of the iconic films of its particular genre. So here he is working with this as well. Having also worked in the giallo on a TV screen with the Door to Darkness series, um, his score for the Tram episode directed by Argento is particularly good. Uh, I think that's got some really great sort of suspense, uh, nerve-jangling music in it that works really, really well. So he he did well with this type of film, um, but you know ultimately it wasn't a a genre that he kept with after the uh, Deep Red debacle. I suspect. Uh, you know, it was just as well for him to move on to fresh pastures and do different things after that. But uh, uh, still, he does a good job with this. He provides the movie with the uh, necessary accompaniment. And again, working in tandem with Massey's staging, uh, which is often quite dynamic. There's a lot of voyeuristic angles in this film, too. There was a scene earlier which could have been a rather boring uh, dialogue scene with Francis Matthews. But he's shooting through panes of glass and a door. Um, it's a very interesting way of staging the scenes. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, kind of eye-catching way that Jess Franco would sometimes stage certain scenes by shooting through panes of glass, catching little bits of reflection, playing around with lens flares, things like that. So certain things that were not regarded as good cinematic grammar back in the day, although they've kind of come into their own in more recent years. I mean, especially lens flare, thanks to J.J. Uh, Abrams, is, is acceptable nowadays. Uh, but back in the day, not so much. But you see some of that in Franco's work, and you see some of that here, um, you know, with, with some of the camera work that Massey is doing as well. Uh, it just adds a layer of not only visual interest, but also plays into this notion of voyeurism that is very central to the Jalu in general. I mean, not just specifically to this film, but uh, it's it's probably the most voyeuristic of genres, unless you want to get into, like, sex films and so forth. Um, you know, there's there's a great deal of emphasis on people spying on each other, uh, surveillance and uh, listening and, you know, half-glimpse conversations. And the Argento trope does come into this film as well, that Francis Matthews knows he saw something that doesn't add up. The flower pots, again, going back to that scene where our heroine has survived an attack. Not only mark that well, but mark the flower pots well. And Massey definitely hammers that point home by really, um, you know, pulling out and showing those flower pots on the windowsill in a way that uh, kind of tells us, okay, her story doesn't really add up. So it's that idea of the uh, the kind of half-remembered clue that haunts the protagonist. He doesn't do it the whole way through the film this time, but that's something that Argeno certainly did in his films a great deal. Yes, and uh, remaining on the topic of uh, Stelvio Massey's career, it's worth mentioning um, some of his aliases, his uh, pseudonyms. I'm, um, there are a couple I, I really like. I mean, he's um, 
he's um, he signed films uh, either as a camera operator or a DOP or director as uh, Stefano Catalano, Don Edwards, and you know fairly <clears throat> common names, but also as Steve Rock, uh, which I particularly like because Massi. Uh, actually uh, means rocks uh, so so that's um, that's a nice one and obviously in the 80s uh, his um, go-to one was Max Steel which uh, I find uh, I find particularly amusing um, and uh, he used Max Steel for quite a few films um, which I think says a lot about uh, his attitude towards them uh, both in the fact he did use a pseudonym in the first place and the particular pseudonym he chose for those films max steel uh yeah sounds like a private eye <laughs> <laughs> yes yes um or a moustache-bearing uh, porn actor from the 1970s. <laughs> uh, but... I wasn't going to go there, but you did it for me. Good, good for you. Um, yeah, it's hard It's hard to top um, in terms of ridiculous pseudonyms, although it is a direct translation. It's an unfortunate one. There's an art director, uh, Franco Fumagalli, I believe, um, who is billed on, on certain films as uh, Frank Smokecox. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to top that one, although Dick Spitfire is another one I'm, I'm very fond of. <laughs> Ah yes, Dick Spitfire is uh, that that date is a good one. <laughs> um, but speaking of Massey's uh, pseudonyms, the one that was used for um, for a fistful of dollars. Now there's there's I think this is worth uh, worth mentioning because so many sources, uh, you know, legitimate mainstream sources such as Wikipedia or IMDb, uh, you know, state that. Uh, Stelvio Massi was the camera operator of Leone's first Western and second film as a director. Uh, that is, in fact, not the case. Uh, Stelvio Massi did not work on Leone's film. Um, there is Steve Rock there, uh, and but he did not work on it. Um, he did, however, have, there is a connection uh, with uh, between Stelvio Massi and Sergio Leone. The two knew each other. Um, they started their careers simultaneously, pretty much in the same period. Um, and according to uh, a number of sources and people interviewed, uh, Stelvio Massi was the person who suggested to Sergio Leone to go and see Kurosawa's film. Uh, 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 they met at Piazza del Popolo, right bang in the historical center of Rome, and uh, Massi said, you should go and watch a Yojimbo. Uh, and the rest is history. So there is a connection there. Uh, but yes, Stelvio Massi did not work on Leone's film, uh, unlike what many sources state. Yeah, and it, you know, it's the same thing with the Clint Eastwood story. Everybody tells that story that they did it. Uh, Enzo Barboni uh, claimed that he was the one that was responsible for telling him to go see it. Uh, other people came in and said, I think, uh, I think uh, Fernando DeLeo may have claimed it as well. Every American actor in Italy during that time claims to have turned down Fistful of Dollars, but recommended Clint Eastwood. Uh, Mark Damon, who's notorious for telling tall tales, of course, you know, I, I was the one who started Clint Eastwood's career. Uh, all these people make these claims, so you never know. Uh, you know, success has many fathers, whereas uh, failure nobody is uh, interested in claiming anything on, which is why nobody's claiming anything on this film, because as we mentioned before, it was a complete box office dud. It did nothing. Um, 
various factors could play into that. One of them is the fact that, you know, certainly it didn't have an international, any kind of significant international release. Um, we talked shortly before we started recording today, is, is there even such a thing as an English dub on this film? And I'm not sure about that. We have an English leading man, Francis Matthews, uh, who is speaking his lines in English. Um, other actors are speaking in Italian, I believe. Other actors are kind of approximating English as kind of typical during these films at this time. Um, but it, was there ever an English language dub prepared? I don't know because there's only an Italian dub that I've ever seen. Um, so this is not a movie that had that kind of international exposure. Famously, there were films like Blood and Black Lace, which were complete and total box office duds in Italy, but they did well internationally. They got released in France, in Germany, in America, in Great Britain, and they did good business. So they ended up being profitable. They just didn't, nobody in Italy cared about them. Um, and, uh, you know, famously, really until Argento came on the scene, with the exception of something like The Sweet Body of Deborah, Giallo films in Italy hadn't been particularly successful. They hadn't done particularly well at the Italian box office, but again, internationally they had some appeal. They had export value, so they would crank them out every now and again. Argento's films, because of his connection with the youth movement, he had uh, you know his finger on the pulse on certain things that the older directors simply didn't. Uh, he was able to bridge that gap and make it into kind of a cottage industry, which, again, was very prolific during the 1970s. But he didn't really have any big names for this film. I mean, Francis Matthews would have been a good name for the British market, um, but no way a film like this was going to get released in Great Britain in the 1970s, not with its sexualized violence, blood on breasts, um, vaginas getting slashed. I mean, this is the BBFC's bet noir. This is not a film that was going to get released in the UK. So Francis Matthews... Uh, poll in the UK would, wouldn't have had any bearing on it whatsoever, and certainly he's not a name in the US, so it's not a movie that really had a lot going for it in terms of that type of name value. Sylvia Massey was still a relatively inexperienced director who hadn't really established himself, so he didn't have that kind of back catalog or that kind of name value either. Um, so yeah, this is one of those movies that kind of disappeared for a long time, fell through the cracks, and it's one of those movies really only the, uh, the diehards are particularly aware of. Um, I have a question for you. If you had to choose the strangest casting choice in an Italian film, when it comes to foreign actors, which would it be? Bef before you answer, probably mine. The first that comes to mind would be Sir John Gilgud in Caligula. That that one is always, <laughs> I always makes me smile. Well, it's hard to top that, isn't it? I mean, uh, especially in a film like that, although we could equally point to somebody like Peter O'Toole in the same film. I mean, it's it's like, how did this happen? Uh, although, as we know, the film is not really what it was originally intended to be. So, in fairness, um, they, they signed on for a very different thing. <laughs> although, apparently, Sir John was quite tickled at the idea of having appeared in a porn film. So, there you go. Uh, at least he wasn't required to participate in the... Uh, the more um, physically uh, uh, intense sequences, so to speak. Although he might have been up for it. Um, I, You know, that's a really good question. I'm sure that I'll kick myself afterwards for not thinking better. I mean, I've always found the casting of Francis Matthews in this film to be really strange. I'm going to be honest with you, from the first time I saw it, I thought, this is not who I expect to play this part. Um, you know, he's in his late 40s by the time he's doing this. His, uh, he's getting a little jowly. 
Uh, he's got a little bit of a comb-over thing going on that isn't particularly flattering for him in this film, it has to be said. He'd been a very attractive young man. You see him in things like uh, The Revenge of Frankenstein, where he's opposite Peter Cushing. Uh, he'd been opposite Christopher Lee in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Rasputin, the Mad Monk. He'd been opposite Boris Karloff in Christopher Lee in Corridors of Blood. He'd played Paul Temple on British TV from 1969 to 1971. He was the voice of Captain Scarlet for Jerry Anderson. I mean, he'd had this really kind of interesting uh, career and here he is in Italy doing this film. And again, I think one of the things that makes it such an odd thing for me is this isn't typical for him. He's not in a bunch of these movies. He doesn't show up in an Italian Western. He doesn't show up in, in anything really kind of outside of this movie that kind of makes it make sense as to how this happened. I'd love to know how he was cast. Um, Later in life, he nearly played the uh, the role of Dr. Chanard in, I think, the best of the Hellraiser movies, Hellbound, uh, Hellraiser 2. Um, he talked about auditioning for that and, and being quite baffled because they had him on a, a rig to have him flying around, and he was he was quite perplexed. Uh, Kenneth Cranham ended up getting the part and did a fantastic job. Um, but how did he end up in this film? I do not know. It's such a strange choice. So maybe he would be my pick. Um, I'm sure there are stranger ones that I'm just not thinking of right now. But, um, yeah, that's, that's definitely one that comes to mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely an odd one. It reminds me a little bit, remaining within Jalo territory, uh, of um, a 1969 Jalo uh, directed by, so we are pre-Argento here, directed by Vittorio Sindoni called Deadly Inheritance. Um, oh yeah, and we have Tom Drake there um, in his only uh, Italian film, and definitely only Giallo. Um, and of course, Tom Drake is mo mostly known for Meet Me in St. Louis uh, with um, Judy Garland and Lassie, and you know, um, completely, you know, the different imagery, let's say. And uh, Tom Drake is just. Uh, a very bizarre choice for that for that specific film. Um, you are quite right. But, yeah, I agree with that. There's also Lawrence Tierney in Killer Without a Face. Uh, he has no dialogue and he's not in it very much. Uh, that's a strange choice. Gary Merrill in um, uh, the Brunello Rondi film, uh, Run Claire Run, I think it was called. Um, that seemed an odd choice as well, kind of out of left field. And he's not... And I think it's only because it's such a small part that anybody could have played, but I'm always surprised to see Tom Skerritt in Plot of Fear. Oh, yes, definitely. That, that, is, uh, that is a bizarre, a bizarre choice. But uh, yes, there are a number of films uh, that... Uh, I mean, I guess it's easier to explain the presence of these international actors in the films of the 1950s and 60s because Italy mm -hmm. was such a, and especially Rome, obviously, was such a uh, uh, a kind of a must-go place. Uh, you know, it was the capital in Europe of uh, the cultural, definitely the cinematic world. Um, so, you know, it was easy to intercept, uh, you know, a popular actor and get him on board, even for just uh, a few days of filming. Um, you know, that's how Eddie Bracken, comedian, American comedian Eddie Bracken, ended up in a uh, uh, Giulio Petroni directed comedy in the early 60s, uh, Domenica d'Estate, uh, Always on Sunday. Uh, you, you, but in the 70s, uh, despite still retaining a lot of its uh, importance, uh, definitely Rome is not anymore that kind of 
um, uh, cathartic, uh, um, I mean, uh, polarizing uh, capital it had been during the previous two decades. Um, so it, it gets more and more bizarre at times. Uh, to find these these sort of people, uh, and we're um, we're closing in. Uh, we're getting closer to the end of the film. Uh, I mean, more JMB. A lot of JMB here, uh, right there in front of the camera, and uh, <laughs> we we kind of you know here we get the kind of Columbesque uh, uh, scene with uh, in yes. the inspector kind of getting all the survivors. Uh, in the living room and giving a speech and standing in front of them. It's uh, very much an archetypal scene. And uh, Howard Ross, with his incredibly dark hair, uh, so dark, so, um, so uh, just very striking, um, Howard Ross in this film. And George Albertazzi, of course, uh, uh, which I find interesting. He gives the character, uh, I don't know if it was his choice as an actor, um, but uh, he, or it was Massey's, I don't know if it was he present in Clerici's script, but there is something, um, there's a very specific wardrobe, you know, uh, he, he has his uh, shirt open, open in a lot of scenes, and uh, he plays, there is something quite uh, unsophisticated in a way, kind of a little bit... Um, um, kind of in your face about his character. Uh, he's a very specific kind of Italian from that era, kind of a very playboy, uh, uh, kind of um, uh, womanizing kind of vibe to him that comes across a lot through the uh, wardrobe choices. Uh, I don't know if uh, an international public, if foreign public audiences can pick up on it, but it is a very specific kind of Italian of that period. Um, even uh, uh, his, uh, yes, a lot of a lot of elements tied to the wardrobe. And here we, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got you know the the shirt is open, the uh, the chest hair, and you know uh, fortunately um, he drew the line at uh, two tight trousers. But uh, nevertheless, he does convey an air of being uh, decadent and uh, a, a little bit thuggish as well. But I think it's a good choice that works well for the film. I rather like these end titles. It's kind of uh, interesting, slightly unique way of doing it with uh, just a little, little insert there across the newspaper so that we can continue looking at him, looking surprised that he got <laughs> caught. The idea of two killers uh, you know, goes all the way back to Blood and Black Lace and, of course, comes into play in Tenebrae as well. So that's, uh, that's a nice little element, a nice little surprise to end the film. But, um, yeah, I mean, neither fish nor fowl in some respects in terms of the giallo in general but i think it looks a lot better now and it makes it a lot more entertaining to watch and uh i've enjoyed looking at it again with you today same it's been a pleasure um and yes i, th I think time has been relatively generous with this film definitely watching it again uh with a superior master helps a lot um in uh, in uh, you know uh, a lot of films do you can't say the same thing about them absolutely well thank you all for listening thank and we'll you. talk to you again in the future <laughs>